Welcome to the Nemeth Report podcast. I'm Dr. Tammy Nemeth, energy historian, analyst, consultant, and I'll be your host. Today, I'm really honored to be joined by Brian Crossman, partner at Independent Well Services Company and a frequent contributor to Pipeline Online. Our topic for conversation today is the net zero energy transition in Canada and its effects, its challenges, and opportunities for independent operators in the Canadian energy industry. So, Brian, before we get started, can you just take a moment to introduce yourself to our audience today? What's your background? How did you come to be a partner of the Independent Well Services Company in Saskatchewan? Well, thanks, Tammy. Uh, first, thanks for uh, inviting me to the podcast. I appreciate it. Uh, and thank you for all the work you do, uh, you know, being a, a good advocate for the energy industry, not just in Canada, but around the world. So well, thank I'm you. appreciated by all of us out here. Uh, but yeah, my name is Brian Crossman. I started in the oil patch in 1985. Uh, it was supposed to be just for the summer, and uh, <laughs> I'm still in it. And uh, I started off working for uh, a well servicing company. Then uh, after about eight years out, I, I went overseas for a little while, did some work in Russia and Siberia with on a Calgary overseas project for Better Well, and I came back and then uh, worked for uh, the same company I worked for in Canada before and the badge services, they were sold to the Enzyme Group. And then after a few years of that, uh, me and a couple of the other guys working there, uh, we decided we would strike out on our own and uh, we started, formed independent well servicing and uh, my current position there is I'm the, the sales slash marketing guy, I guess, and uh, the, whatever else needs to be done. And uh, it's been a, a really good run. We started that in 2004 and we're still operating this day and uh, keeping uh, guys employed and uh, doing good work for our, our valuable customers and uh, and uh, having a good safe work environment for our people to be in and everyone can earn uh, money and hopefully have a decent work-life balance. That's awesome. It's so great that that you guys got together and formed this company and that you you employ a fair number of people, I imagine. And has your company expanded over the years? Uh, we have expanded. We've kind of pulled back a little bit after the last slowdown. Uh, it's the, the biggest challenge is finding people. And so we're focused on uh, providing uh, the top shelf crews and uh, good equipment for our customers. Uh, expansion is great, but uh, currently it's it's harder to find the people to come work in the industry, and that presents uh, a whole pile of new challenges oh, as for well. Sure. Uh, so that's where we're struggling. We don't want to send out a bunch of guys that are going to be, you know, possibly hazardous themselves or our customers, right, or or the environment or anything for that matter. So we we like we take pride in having good tight crews. We have a solid management team. Uh, our general manager and field supervisors are excellent, and we work hard at. at doing a great job for our customers. And that, that's the goal is to provide good service with uh, minimal problems. So. Yeah, that sounds sounds impressive and, and good. So, you know, you've had some very interesting international experiences. You mentioned that you spent some time in Russia. So how does Canada and Saskatchewan compare with other jurisdictions with respect to safety or the environment or employee relations? Well, uh, like I say, my, my time in Russia is it's quite a while ago now, but I still remember it quite vividly. Uh, it's definitely uh, a totally different atmosphere over there back then. It was probably there in the mid-90s. And uh, the environment was uh, was ter terrible as far as how they treated the, the environment. It's like oil spills were common, salt water spills very common. And things you wouldn't see in Canada even back then or even in my whole lifetime going back to 1985 when I started. Like uh, one example I'll, I can give is the one I took, I have a picture of the rig I was operating, Beta 49. And it, that day I took that picture, there's a big cloud of black smoke in the background. And anywhere I turned in 360 degrees, I could see another cloud of black smoke. And what they were doing was burning off the oil spills from the previous winter when, <laughs> the, when they have full line leaks. And they would basically get out there in the muskeg and push it all into a pile, then they would light it on fire and burn it off. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and I and I can't say that they do that that way now, but uh, you know I I would hope they've improved their their techniques since then on spill recovery, but I can't say for sure. I I guess I could do a little research and find out sometime. It might be interesting. Yeah, it would be interesting to see the evolution of of those practices if it's improved. I I suspect it it's improved over time, especially as more international companies were operating. Um, in Russia, trying to help them 
you know, operate in, in a better, more environmental, uh, safety conscious way. Um, yep. so, you know, you said that, that, um, your company hasn't kind of slowed expansion since the last downturn. So what have, what have the biggest changes you've seen, um, in Canada and in, in the Saskatchewan patch and energy industries over say the past 15 years or so? Well, I, I think uh, there's been a, a lot of changes. Like, like say the, 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 only, the only constant in the oil patches, and uh, the safety has gotten a lot better since when I started. Like I say, but you know, we have, a, I guess, we have the challenges like the manpower, as I mentioned earlier. In part, I think we were struggling with the media uh, and government, you know, basically, and on our education system, turning people away from the energy industry. Tell, you know, basically the telling people it's, well, you don't want to be in oil and gas. It's a, a bad industry to be in. It's dirty and they cause all these problems and global warming and everything else, which I have my own opinions on that. But, you know, the, and the costs are a lot higher than they used to be. You know, you know, things like manpower shortages, unrealistic ESG goals, carbon taxes, insurance, equipment costs. These are directly affects the contractors and their abilities to be competitive, safe and efficient and profitable. The goal is to make profit for our shareholders. And keep yeah. the equipment in top condition, and of course, provide safe, high-paying jobs with a good work-life balance for the team. Uh, you know, and our customers, and rightfully so, they expect you know top-shelf crews and good equipment and good safety records, and uh, you know it's and these things they all do cost money, and we do everything we can to keep our costs in line so that we can can continue working for these customers, and you know all of whom are are really great, and for the most part, very understanding about our situation as well. And they try to accommodate us, but you know they're trying to make money for their shareholders too. So uh, we have to find that that right balance, and uh, you know I, I think we do a fairly decent job of that for the most part. But yeah, it's it's been a it's been a long string of change, you know, of changes. The equipment has definitely gotten better. The you know free, we were one of the first companies in this in this part of the world to have freestanding double triples. That means there's no guidelines on the rigs, and uh, so you don't have to drill you know pins into the ground, and uh, just uh, you name it, I guess. This the the safety training is in you know I think each each one of our guys has anywhere between twenty and twenty six different safety courses under their belts, just to go work on the rig every day. Yeah. So, when your rigs are out there, um, do you has there been a shift recently where um, maybe you're working on other projects besides oil and gas? Yeah, we've we've actually been uh, doing some of this other work, like uh, this potash solution mining has, has been a, a big adaptation for uh, the equipment. It's been around for a long time, actually, going back into the 70s at uh, Bell Plain. We haven't worked on that particular project, but I know guys that have. We've done solution mining work at other potash mines up around Saskatoon and up near Regina, Western Potash. Uh, we've been involved with some helium exploration and work, and that's more of that's upcoming as well, and that's interesting. Uh, also, lithium brine, we've been doing some work on that, and we got some more upcoming next year. And we were involved with the Deep Earth Energy Geothermal Project by Torquay as well, and uh, we've done a lot of work there. And there's more of that coming down the pipe, too. They're just working on perfecting their processes and, and exactly how they're going to be proceeding with that. So there's lots of uh, there's lots of other things, too. And, you know, we've done work on cavern storage facilities, like underneath Saskatchewan. There is all kinds of uh, caverns where we store natural gas, butane, liquid propane, and that for various companies, Transgas being one of them, and uh, Sask Energy. And we've done work repairing, keeping those caverns in good repair as well. And then uh, the other thing is uh, carbon capture is coming down the pipe. It's getting more, you know, prevalent like SAS power. And then I know people in Alberta that are doing some uh, groundwork on creating some carbon capture opportunities out there as well. So I think this, and this uh, ties in nicely with drilling and oil well servicing. It's the same equipment. It's the same, same uh, processes, basically, just for a different reason. So there's uh, definitely some some future in a lot of that. I think for Saskatchewan and, and Western Canada. Do you do you have to train your employees differently depending, like if you're if you're doing helium or geothermal? Are there different concerns that you know? Is there different kind of training that's required for your employees? 
Uh, not really. It's a, it's basically, you know, a lot of it's just the tripping pipe in and out of the hole and doing production testing, which sometimes involves swabbing or circulating or, or clean outs, things like that, which is kind of standard stuff for the oil patch. So, right. you know, there, there, we might run into the odd thing a little bit different, you know, especially if you're working with uh, gases and stuff like that. And, and you know, it's just, it's uh, pretty straightforward, really. Like, say, we, we have run into uh, naturally occurring radioactive materials at times, but we've run into that in the oil patch, too, so we've taken training for that before as well. So it's uh, nothing really brand new. It's just just different work. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. At least there there isn't uh, a whole lot of extra training and whatnot required for sort of transferring those skills to uh, a, a different type of resource, which is which is good to hear. Um, so what do you see then as as a hurdle um for a company like yours uh if there if there is this this forced transition to these other things is it is that a big hurdle for you guys or you know given that you can um do this the drilling for lithium and helium and geothermal and carbon capture um do you see that will be a challenge for you uh well i think the biggest challenge will be the the like say I, I guess uh, like the perceived lack of of upcoming work in the future in the oil patch, and that's and I think that's just not a problem for well servicing or drilling, but that's a problem for the Canadian taxpayer. Uh, we we do a lot of funding, as you well know, Tammy, for our country through taxes gained, you know, provincially and federally from uh, the energy industry, and this is where the the big problem is is trying to shut down an industry that basically keeps a lot of Canada employed and in with uh, revenue from oil and gas and taxation on, on various levels, going right from the ground all the way up to the, something built in Ontario or Quebec that we use out here. And, and, and of course, uh, you know, the cost of carbon tax and ESG regulation, which, you know, sometimes uh, they, sometimes I can understand why they're doing it, but sometimes a lot of these ESG rules don't make a lot of sense either. And I think, uh, we need to streamline that as well to so that we can be efficient on this. And I think uh, when we do these things, uh, and you know where we're trying to cut down cut out oil and gas altogether in this country, we do it at our own peril because our oil will still be coming out of the ground and we'll still be using it. It's just going to come from other countries. Yeah, for sure. Although they they are trying to like Canada, which has signed on to various UN initiatives are trying to throttle demand because they figure if they can stop people from using or demanding oil or natural gas, then they can uh, have a justification, a further justification for shutting down the industry. And there's like the IEA report that came out yesterday um, was all about, oh, we're we're reaching peak demand. And when once they face out the the internal combustion engine and force people out of their cars, um, then there won't be demand for it. So that's kind of that trajectory. But I don't, I don't know if I believe that. You know, if, if India and China um, and other developing countries in Africa don't want to use electric vehicles and want to continue using the internal combustion engine, then I don't see how the demand is going to drop that much. Well, you're absolutely right, Tammy. I think uh, the, the demand isn't going to drop. And like say, electric cars have their place. And uh, I think they're they're a great idea. The technology doesn't exist yet to make them that uh, so they work in, in climates like Canada or worldwide for that matter. You, you know, we still have to charge the batteries. I think it's not so much the electric car itself, but it's the storage of the electricity is where the problem lies. And like I, I have an ongoing joke with a couple of buddies of mine and say, well, if your electric car charge you know runs out of power you got to get out there with a with a generator and charge it up or put it on the back of a truck and tow it away and if your car <laughs> runs out of gas well you just take a pail of gas out there and put the gas in your car and away you go you can't yeah. take a pail of electricity out and pour it in the in the electric <laughs> and and like I say and like I say I'm and I've, I've always said this I'm not against electric cars I just think that we need to focus on getting them perfected before we run blindly into the future not you know I'm trying to think the right way to say it, half cocked, I guess, you know, like we're, we seem like we're, and and the same goes for windmills and solar panels. I think we're, we're throwing, you know, vast amounts of money and resources at these projects. And uh, they don't have the same kind of uh, energy density as crude oil does. 
Yeah. Uh, I know. Anyway. The, the energy density is such a huge element of it all that just, you know, when, when as soon as you mention energy density to a policymaker, their eyes kind of glaze over. It's like, oh, my gosh, don't get <laughs> sciencey, you know. <laughs> well, you, you're exactly right, Tommy. And what what they need to understand is, is like, you know, and I, I think anything's possible. And I think in the future, we, yeah, we could very well in, invent a form of uh, energy that's easily storable safely and efficiently. But I think by trying to throw money in all different directions at, at the things we just mentioned, solar power, windmills uh, and everything, we're, we're throwing a bunch of our future away when we could be you know, using the revenues we have from oil and gas to fund the projects and do the, you know, get the, the physicists and the engineers and scientists on this all on the same page and focusing toward one goal instead of uh, looking toward, you know, just throwing money at every direction, the new thing that comes up. And and I, I think a lot of this, and this is just, you know, me and $1.50 will get you coffee with this opinion, but uh, I think a lot of it's uh, in self-enriching for uh, companies and politicians to throw money at these projects. Knowing full well that they're probably not going to work. I think there's an uh, electric bus company states just went uh, went under, yeah. based on their fact that they're not they're just not working. And I yeah. and I think that's what we need to avoid that. And and like say, and I think the free market's the best way to dictate it, but it needs to be a free market, not a government mandated market by handing out subsidies and everything else to these companies so they can build a few buses, a few cars, or a project or windmills, solar farm, and then. 10, 15, or even years later, even 20 months in some cases, everything goes belly up and we've thrown a bunch of money away for nothing. And we can be working harder at being more efficient with our fossil fuel, carbon capture and things like that. We can continue to use the resources we have for for decades, hundreds of years to come if we do it in the right way. And you know, and we've we've gotten better at uh, at keeping pollution at bay over the years, like acid rain, we don't even talk about that anymore. <laughs> But that's a really good point um, that you're making. It's it's a forced transition. It's not a natural one. Um, what they're, you know, what's being proposed isn't a better alternative. Now, when when petroleum, as you as you know, when petroleum came along, it was better than what was there before. It was better than the horses. It was better than uh, coal running ships and so on. And and so it was a better alternative that you know, became ubiquitous. And so now the only reason why um, policymakers and people in the environmental movement don't want us to use it anymore isn't because there's a better technology out there to replace it. It's because there's been this demonization of carbon dioxide because they might say greenhouse gas emissions, but the target is really carbon dioxide. So, um, as long as it's a forced transition and isn't, as you say, the, the market that's coming up with a better alternative or has researched um, some really cool new technology that is more efficient, is, uh, is better, then this is kind of doomed to failure. And um, we could, as you say, be spending this money on certain adaptations. If, if the weather is going to get a little bit worse, fossil fuels or hydrocarbons and having that money to prepare it and recover is is lost <laughs> if, if you're spending it or wasting it on all of these different initiatives that you know if, if there's there's scientists and uh, entrepreneurs out there who are more than willing to take advantage of whatever grants and subsidies are out there and there's all kinds of pitches being made for lots of different things that they know are doomed to failure, but it's it's a bit of a way to to generate some income and revenue, and that's not necessarily to the benefit of of the economy. Well, you're exactly right, Tammy. Like say, you made the point about the na a natural transition, just like uh, from horses to to oil and gas and and uh, and fossil fuels, and it's 100% true. It's I just I, when I see. The, the, the amount of resources we're throwing away at very, very short term projects like we, I'm sure you've seen the pictures of the windmill blades cut up and buried in the ground. Yeah, in, uh, in Wyoming and Texas, I believe now too. And uh, just like 
and then solar panels having their 20 year lifespan. I think solar panels are fantastic on top of your camper or out your acreage and things like that. And, and, and people have them in their houses in Hawaii because they have so much sun there. But you have solar panels in uh, near Weyburn, Saskatchewan. And we get we get a fair bit of sun here, but we don't get a year round. We get clouds, we get snow and we get rain. And uh, and I, I read an article, I think you may have posted about uh, solar panels barely being 20% efficient. Yeah. And we're throwing you know millions of dollars at these things, and and uh, I just it doesn't make any sense to me. I guess, and I guess maybe it's just the farm boy in me looking at it, saying that 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 uh, that dog don't hunt. Yeah. I guess. Well, I was listening to Robert Bryce the other day talking to Jonathan Duby from Israel, and uh, Jonathan is this amazing, intelligent professor in you know physics and all this kind of thing. And he had worked, he'd been working in the field of solar, uh, solar power. And he was saying, you know, in Israel, they have um, a lot of sun and it's, they're still, it's not very efficient. It's energy density. And it, it was a really great conversation. I recommend it to people to listen um, just to give a, a sort of reality check to what's, what's possible with solar because as you say it's a bit of a of a niche market for it if you're camping or you're in a remote location where you're away from the grid it makes perfect sense or maybe if you want to put some on your roof to generate hot water for your for your house or something like that but for the most part as as base load power it's not helpful and so which kind of brings me to this issue of because you'd mentioned various taxes and whatnot. So we we have these carbon taxes, we have these regulations that stymie some companies and promotes other companies. Um, and, and I'm wondering for for your company, what what's the impact of these various carbon taxes and regulations? Well, it, it's absolutely huge, Tammy. It's like our, our just to heat our shop with natural gas, you know, and we require our, we work year round. So we require to keep the shop warm so that our technicians can keep the equipment in good repair. And uh, the power bill, well, we, you know, we have welders and we have, we got to keep the lights on. And then the other part is gasoline and diesel fuel to run the equipment and the trucks to go to location. And, and that's money that's gone forever. We don't get it back. It's like, I know that, you know, when you listen to our prime minister on TV, well, you know, you'll get your, your uh, carbon tax refund. Well, that doesn't, not the case with companies, right? That's just individuals and, and lower income people with that, right? Yeah. I'm saying they shouldn't get a, a rebate, but you can't, it, I've never been able to understand any, like it, the same goes for GST. And I know it's a little more complex than, than carbon tax, but we take the money from you and then we give you some of it back and then everyone's happy. Well, it, I, I don't, I, I guess I'm just not uh, educated enough to understand that. It just doesn't make any sense to me though. I think if you leave the money in the hands of the people that earn it, I think you'll be a lot farther ahead. You know, without the carbon tax, we could afford to pay our guys more. We could keep our equipment in, you know, even more updated. We could invest in newer technologies and everything else too. But instead, it's going out the door to the government, and and uh, you know, you can maybe you can enlighten me on what they do with that money. Well, they redistrib- they redistribute it to a lot of those projects that you were describing earlier. You know, so there's. For example, today the government announced twenty billion for um, rental housing. That so they take the money from the carbon tax and then invest it into projects like that or whatever the government feels like the money ought to be spent on. So, and you know they're taking it from your business, making sure that your business can't, is can't invest it the way you want it want to, and instead the government invests it the way they want to. So, well, that's, yeah, it's hard to feel like you're in control of your destiny when you're watching these things happen in real time in front of you. Yeah. You know, it's, and they say, and, and hey, we, you know, we absolutely need affordable housing in this country. And that's just, it's a crisis that's getting worse. Uh, I, you know, I see young people that uh, probably don't have a hope of ever owning their own home. And, and based on, and they say, it's a, we're all kind of off the energy topic, but it, it's pertinent as well. Like you say, it's all, all part and parcel. If, if people can make a good living, in whatever industry, energy industry included, they can afford to to have their own home eventually and, and raise their families and, and be able to put their children through school and university and everything else like a, a lot of us have been able to do. Yeah. 
For sure. And well, it's, it's compounding, right? So if, if there's all these different taxes going through the economy and it starts with the carbon dioxide tax, the carbon dioxide emissions tax, and then there's the clean fuel standard tax. And then there's various other <laughs> taxes on taxes. Like it's, it's rather absurd that the GST gets charged on top of whatever other taxes they've put on things. And then that has a has a compounding ripple effect through the entire economy. So then it makes everything more expensive. So if you're trying to build a house, well, now you have all of those different taxes um, that have, you know, for your fuel and whatnot and your electricity, because the, the carbon taxes are on the electricity generation as well. So it makes everything more expensive. And it it bothers me when the federal government pretends that it doesn't have an effect and it, when it clearly, clearly does. Well, and yeah, exactly. It's like when they brought the, the head, the heads of the three major grocery store chains in Canada to the Ottawa last, like two weeks ago now, maybe. And uh, I, I was kept, kind of kept up to date on some of that. And basically they were told like, well, you have to solve this high food price problem. And it's like, and, and, a guy like me on the street can see, you know why the costs are high. Heat in the grocery stores, power in the grocery stores, shipping the food with fossil fuels to the stores. And then, and then they're going, we don't know why the price is so high. It must be your fault, uh, grocery store chain A, B, or C. Yeah. And, uh, so they, they do these things and to, to deflect the blame from themselves who, who created the problem in the first place. And then, so, and, 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 the problem is, is the people going to the grocery stores, go to, you know, a bag that used to hold, uh, was full and hold $30 worth of groceries and now $60 worth of groceries. Yeah. And it, it makes like, you know, and for, for someone that says they're, you know, they want to help the middle class and the average Canadian, well, that is doing the exact opposite. And the other thing too, I, I, I and I don't know this research to be 100% true, but I kind of looked into it a little bit. And they saying though the grocery stores are making rec record profits and absolutely they're doing okay as well they should they're looking after their shareholders and their their employees and everything else they should they need to be making money but their margins from what I read are only three point six percent yeah so they make their, they make their money on on volume right which is fair enough so if you ask them to drop it down to make like one point five percent or two percent margin well how long does that fly for before they start Making more changes in the grocery stores, less employees, and 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 uh, you know, and having to cut corners other places. Like, uh, I it just doesn't make any sense to me. I guess. Right, and, and and the other issue is that a lot of, and I'm sorry that we're sort of digressing, but it's related. But the other issue is that who owns the grocery chains? In fact, it's a lot of pension funds. So is the. Mm -hmm. It, when the, when they're saying they, that they don't want the, these shareholders to make as much money, what they're really saying then is they don't want these institutional investors and the pension funds to have a decent rate of return for their investors. So that 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 will have a bad effect on um, the the public that that has their pensions invested in some of these companies. That's a great point, Tammy. I never even considered that, and that that's one hundred percent true. Like you say, it's full in in my age group. We're getting you know not you know I I like to keep going for a lot long time yet, but you know retirement is a factor, and your investments should play a large part in that. And uh, and basically, when you see a government that's intent on breaking capitalism in this country, and I yeah. think they've gone a, they've done a uh, you know a yeoman's job of that already. They're, and and continuing when they're blaming companies for making a profit, and 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 mad at them like I said earlier, because well you're making too much money and you're charging too much, but it's based on uh, the costs are going up because of uh, you know, you know, you know things they've instituted carbon yeah. tax and taxes on taxes, <laughs> and, uh, and 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 yet you think with all this extra tax money that we're giving to the federal government every year through personal and and corporate tax and everything else and, and you know, and you think that we would be running at a surplus on the budget every year. Well, they have too many other things to spend it on. Unfortunately, so, <laughs> so I'm wondering, yeah. you know, you mentioned ESG. 
And are are you concerned at all about some of these new um, ESG rules that um, the federal government wants to institute across Canada? Well, absolutely. I, I think it, it, this gets again to, into cutting into people's profits. Like, say, the environment is very important, and, and nobody in the energy industry wants a bad environment. And I think, and uh, you know, you look back in history to the, what the oil has evolved from the 1800s to even when I started in the 1980s. And up till now, there's been fast changes. Things are cleaner. We're running uh, the clean burning diesel engines, and they burn way less fuel than they used to. You know, and 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 you know, we've we've had to do this, and and we're happy to comply with all these things. Like oil spills are are nearly non-existent now. Everyone has excellent company spill policies, and that's so the environment. I think is is well on its way looking after itself in the long run, as long as you know companies are you know. Are encouraged to do better at that, and the the social aspect of it, and I understand a lot of it, and I'm I'm not going to make too much commentary, but you know, with the lack of the difficulty finding manpower, we've had we've hired we have two people of First Nations working for us in leadership roles in our company alone, and I know many others, and uh, you know every company has visible minorities as well, and it's not that you know we. We we don't go looking specifically for these people. They come in the door, and if they can do the job, we'll hire them. You know, and so but being mandated to have a certain amount of of people of you know minorities not in your company is I I don't think it flies anymore. I think we need people. We don't need a certain specific type of person. Right. So it shouldn't matter what a person's. Um ethnic origins are as long as they can do the work it shouldn't matter exactly and, and we we've done that we've hired you know all kinds of people visible minorities we've had uh female roughnecks working for us over the years here and there too you know if they yeah. can do the job they're welcome to come in and do it we're happy to have them you know and some of them have turned out great and then moved on to other careers and you know and uh you know if one walks in the door tomorrow and we have a position we'll hire them you know if they if they're willing to to go there and to say it's not the most fun fun industry to be in, it's a lot of hard labor, cold in the winter, hot in the summer, but it pays well. It's rewarding, and you can learn a lot. I I've, I've had guys start working on a rig for me, and then gone on to go to university and become engineers and things like that too. So it's, it's a good starting point for a lot of people, and I think uh, I, I think that uh, it's a good opportunity for people from all over the world to come to Canada and uh, and seek employment here. They, I promise you, they get they'll get treated better working in in Western Canada than they will in other parts of the world, based yeah, on true. my personal experience and and friends of mine that do work overseas currently. Yeah, for sure, and that's such a good thing to hear about Saskatchewan and Canada in general. Um, so you mentioned that things have changed somewhat, improved with respect to the environment and and your operations, and I'm wondering how your use of water has changed over time it do you use less water in your operations than maybe you used to well definitely a lot less fresh water like we we typically when we clean out wells circulate, we use uh we use water that's existing in the formations already like product produced water like salt use typically salt water not so yeah and still if you're making cement things like if you're you know cementing you've got to have some fresh water but definitely not to the extent it used to be right. and uh and it's and you know everything's reclaimed a lot better. Like uh, the oil companies are better. Like a lot of water flooding goes on, so a lot of that water is 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 always disposed of. But now they're using it to, to enhance uh, recovery techniques. You know, Crescent Point Energy is a good example of that, and others. And carbon capping, you know, white cap resources in the Weyburn unit, they're using car, you know, CO two to yeah. enhance recovery. So things like that, and so I, I think water usage is definitely. And the uh, fractures have gotten more efficient with their water when the out there doing fracks. Fracks aren't as prevalent as they were a decade ago. They're still happening, but not to the extent. A lot of guys, a lot of companies are doing multi-leg horizontals now, and they're having really good success with that. And using less water, less frac sand, everything else too. And uh, the the payout time is a lot quicker when you don't have to spend millions of dollars on a big frac. Yeah, for sure. And especially if you're, do you recycle? Is it there's more recycling of the water going on than than before, right? I believe so. Like that's a little out of the wheelhouse on the well servicing because the water comes and then uh, it gets trucked away by the oil companies to uh, 
to be disposed of. Right. But okay. I think that I think a lot of it just they're just not using as much fresh water. I know there's some potash solution mining where they're using uh, brackish water out of different formations and not fresh water out of uh you know potable water out of aquifers. Yeah. Going a little bit deeper and getting some of the brackish water from the Manville zone and and things like that where they're having you know basically it's water that uh, needs a whole bunch of cleanup but they can use it just fine for doing uh, solution mining for potash so it works out really well. Yeah, have you seen an uptick in potash development in Saskatchewan recently? Yeah, there, there sure is. Yeah, like I said, I know there's uh, there's still some traditional mines. They just built a new traditional mine a couple of years ago, a shaft mine with the underground equipment at Rokenville, and they're currently working on that one at Jansen Lake. But yeah. uh, there's a solution mine just uh, in the process of being put together at my milestone with Western Potash. Yeah, they've got some land and they're developing uh, their strategies currently right now. They got some exciting new techniques that uh, on coming down the line to, to basically add, like you're use a lot less water and uh, and not to have the big pile of salt on the surface anymore. And I think that's one of the biggest attractions of the solution mine is you don't have like in if you've ever driven by a potash mine by Saskatoon or Rokenville traditional potash mines, there's huge piles of salt on surface. And yeah. solution mines. So the solution mines, they, they don't have that. The sulfur goes back down underground uh, in a brine water solution. So things like that, definitely nice for landscaping. You don't have to worry about, you know, a whole bunch of acres of land being contaminated with salt either. Yeah, that's good to know too. Um, so what's your view of Canada's net zero commitments? Do you, do you think they're feasible and, you know... Well, <laughs> I, I guess it's just opinion time again. I think <laughs> net, zero, net zero is a bit of a farce, in my opinion. And I say we you want to do the best you can, obviously. The best use of our resources is always the primary goal. But when you when you say, well, we'll buy we'll we'll buy a bunch of carbon credits through this company where it has trees and so we can burn a bunch more fuel. I, I you get the fuel's gonna get burnt anyway, whether you buy the 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 credits or not, right? So, and I know the money would be, like you said earlier, would be used to fund other, you know, green in quotation marks uh, projects, right? But I, I think rewarding somebody like that, I, a business like that, doesn't make any sense to me. I think we need to focus on on better use of the resources we have, and fo and focus on funding the future with the current resources to. To make advancements, in, you know, to, to pick a Star Trek term, the the dilithium crystal, you know, come up with something <laughs> like that. Something, something where we have unlimited power on tap all the time, and it may exist, it may not, and that's that's for the future to decide, I guess. Yeah. You know, so, but currently, I think we need to make the best use of the current resources we have, and it, it you know, and it's just it's so simple because right now we're in you know the energy industry and and everything across the board. This is how people go to work and make their livings. So they can raise families and and educate them and and move forward. And if we get rid of these jobs and uh, with these green jobs, which I guess we'll hire people to tear down the windmills in twenty years and put up new ones. I guess there's a, a make work project and same for solar panels. <laughs> but uh, they but they say and it goes back to energy density and storage. You know, we nothing has the density or the storage capabilities of fossil fuels right now. And uh, yeah, and Mr. Stephen Gibalt and uh, Mr. Trudeau need to understand that a little in more detail. I'm not sure why they don't, but uh, that's that's a good question for them, I guess. So yeah, so how do you, how would you propose that to recruit more people? Because you say that it's it's difficult to find enough people to work on the rigs and and to do the well servicing and whatnot. So how, what do you think can be done in order to recruit more people? Well, I, I guess, first off, we, you know, the, the media can, can uh, stop demonizing us at any time and same with our federal current federal government. You know, they need to, to say there are great careers out here. We need to do a better job as an industry. And I've had conversations with the president of our association, Mark Schultz, the COEC in Calgary. And uh, and some of my customers as well, like uh, guys that work in Calgary for oil companies, saying, "How do we get people in the industry?" And this is something we've talked about at length, and uh, you know, over coffee and lunch and just on the phone. 
and we, you know, we need to, like, say, A, maybe, you know, don't put demonizing your industry. And B, we need to maybe advertise a little bit better in Eastern Canada, maybe in Toronto, where the cost of living is ridiculous, and you come out to Saskatchewan, and you can buy a pretty decent home for under $400,000. And yeah. that's not even, a, that's barely a down payment in Toronto from what I've been hearing. I'm exaggerating, but, <laughs> but it, it's true. You know, and uh, so, you know, the, the op, I think there's a lot of opportunity out here for the future. Saskatchewan is nowhere near out of oil yet. And Alberta sure as heck isn't either. And North British Columbia and Manitoba, like uh, Tundra Oil and Gas, have great success in, in Manitoba and now Saskatchewan as well. There's a lot of opportunity here, you know, drilling new wells and operating the current wells and abandoning these wells in the future, you know, and there's, there's decades, this, this work's going to be going on long after I'm gone. And uh, the other thing that people keep forgetting to build electric cars and build solar panel windmills, we need oil and oil byproducts, you know, like uh, the plastics and everything else. And, and this gets into the whole other thing about, uh, you know, getting kind of going around in a bit of a circle here. But, uh, you know, the mining that takes place to get all these, uh, you know, rare earth minerals and things like that that we need to make the electric cars and the batteries, the cobalt and that. And it's, I don't know if there's enough material in the world, and maybe there is to create all this, but right now crude oil is doing a better job of, uh, of doing, you know, making us a mobile, well-fed society as opposed to uh, something we haven't really done all the research on yet. Yes, you're right. I mean, there, that's one of the fundamental contradictions of the energy transition is that it's there, the argument is that we need to reduce our, our footprint and impact on Earth. But in so doing, to, by pushing the transition to renewable or so-called renewable energy requires a huge land footprint and environmental impact as you say, with the mining of the cobalt, with the lithium. I mean, it's great in Saskatchewan that, that they're developing a technique where you won't have to do the whole um, pumping out the the, the lithium brine and letting it evaporate out to <laughs> in the air, um, but, but a different way of, of extracting it from a solution. Um, but you still need all of these other mi minerals and metals and whatnot that require not just the mining, but a lot of processing. And so, as I, as I've made the case in in other places, you know, this if it's about not just being environmentally friendly or whatever, and Canada has an outstanding record on ensuring that our um, that we minimize whatever impact we have on the environment when we do development. The other issue is energy security. So we'd be basically offshoring our security to other entities or in particular China, because China controls a significant amount of the, the mining and the processing of all these materials, not to mention also the building of, say, the solar panels. So they manufacture the solar panels, they manufacture the wind turbines, and then ship them over to us. And so, you know, we have all of these amazing resources that are high energy density, you know, various hydrocarbons, whether it's oil, natural gas, or coal, and in the case of Saskatchewan, the, the best uranium in the world. And rather than using our own resources, which allows us to be energy independent and have energy security, we will be giving that up for a potentially host, to be reliant on a potentially hostile entity like China. It just, it, it defies belief in many ways. Well, and you, you're, you're, Exactly spot on, especially when you mentioned energy security. And like you say, by shutting down, say, say tomorrow, you could Stephen Gabalt could snap his fingers and shut down the Canadian oil patch. Well, guess what? We still need oil. So where are we getting it from? We're getting it from Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, and other countries like that that maybe aren't quite as concerned about ESG and they're not quite as concerned about the environment as we are here in Canada. And now, and you, you see these things, and, and now we're at their, you know, we're at their whim, basically. That, well, the crude oil price is going to be $150 a barrel West Texas now. So, and what are we going to do about it? Absolutely nothing, because we don't have any oil wells anymore. You know, and and I, I you know, I'm being facetious when I talk like that because I know we're not going to be abandoning every well overnight. But that's the the risk we put ourselves in, the position we put ourselves in as a country. 
by letting other countries dictate how we how we operate. And, and Saudi Arabian oil still flows into the St. Lawrence River every day on, on tanker ships. Yeah. And, and for no good reason. You know, and, and I understand there's probably trade implications that are above my pay grade and everything else that we make deals with other countries. And I understand that and that's important too. But we we have the opportunity to, to supply our own crude oil and gas and sell it and fund our future with uh, you know exciting projects that can possibly, you know, down the road can can make for a, a greener future than we currently have. Right. And and the problem with the with Ottawa and the different policy initiatives that they're putting forward and all these 2030 plans and 2050 plans and so on is that it sends out market signals. And so you won't get the, the same level of investment in order to increase production to put that oil on the market that could reduce the prices. Instead, um, the market sees or hears what, what Ottawa's doing and they're like, okay, well, we can count that um, Canadian oil off the market. So, you know, then they price or the, the market responds to the different uh, reductions in production from OPEC or OPEC plus um, calculating that, well, Canada won't be contributing anything. It's the same thing with like the, the LNG prices in, in Europe and globally um, because Canada can't actually put our LNG on the market yet because Coastal Gas Link isn't finished and that's the only one that's operate even close to being operational. That means that those prices can't can't be reduced because we can't get our LNG on the market. So it's it's interesting that that our government is making these decisions, which then affect the the larger global pricing of these different commodities that we could be helping bringing the price down. But that's not how Ottawa sees it, I guess. There's no business case, apparently. Yeah, well, I, I guess not. Like you say, and we, we and like I say, we, like I mentioned earlier, we do a way better job in Canada producing the, the fossil fuels. And and like company countries like Japan are would love nothing better to buy Canadian natural gas. Yeah, they're desperate for it for sure. They're, yeah, and we have the opportunity there, but it's just like, well, no, you know, it it's uh, it's a dirty fuel. Well, no, it's not. It's a, it's very clean. We have it. We have an abundance of it for centuries in this country. Like uh, this is some, you know, LNG will be something that our our grandchildren, great grandchildren will be will be watching flow out. Hopefully. At Kitimat and other places in Canada too, other parts of the world where where they can use it to make electricity and stay warm and and uh, have have decent lives as well. And so yeah, it's 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 sad that it's all based on the on our current government and uh, and their their short sightedness. And I I think this goes into one of the problems we have with situations like this is a four year election cycle. Those people governments will say and of, of any strike. You know, everything they do on getting elected again in the next within the next four years, the day after they're elected, and uh, and I think this is obviously this is the the wagon they pitched their horses to, and they they want to continue down this path, thinking that that will get them reelected again, and making promises for 2035 and 2050. I don't think, you know, they they can promise all kinds of wonderful things as long as they know they'll get elected in the next general election, which we sure hope they don't. <laughs> for sure because i mean it just it sends such the the wrong signals and if i could just mention back uh on lng the eu was talking about how they they want to do this transition and they're going to be all electric by 2050 and so on and trudeau said well there's no business case for lng and so on but the eu has signed numerous um long-term contracts 15 to 20 years for LNG, whether it's from Israel or Egypt or Qatar or the United States, you know, they're, they're buying it wherever they can get it. And they're not just saying, well, you know, just supply us this year, but they're signing these long-term contracts. So it, it just bothers me when, when I revisit, you know, Trudeau's whole, there's no business case for LNG. It's like, oh my gosh, come on. That's so not true. <laughs> Well, absolutely not. They like say it, it's LNG and oil and gas and you know crude oil as well. There's a business model for it. Like you say, companies in Canada, despite the hurdles put put in front of them by the federal government, they're still you know making money to the point where 
you know, they, they may have more trouble getting money from banks and lending institutions. So a lot of these companies have bought a bunch of share buybacks and they're uh, drilling on cash flow. And, yeah. you know, and uh, in order to have a good return for the shareholders and, and like you said earlier, then it goes into retirement funding and that too for people. People have their money invested in these things. And uh, and so this will, they, they need, they see this and they, they're, they're not, they're not stupid. They're smart and they know how to, well, we're still gonna make a profit. It won't be the profit we should be making, but we're going to be viable because you can't just up and quit running your oil company and, and find something else to do. You're heavily invested, you know, in in mineral rights, surface land, and equipment and people. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, Brian, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Um, I, I really appreciate you taking a little bit of time out of your work day to, to have this conversation. And I, I'm grateful for your insights and I really hope that you're able to find more employees. Oh, yeah, it, it, I, I think the, it's a challenge, but I think, uh, you know, people are, you know, there's always good people looking for good, good, high paying jobs. And I think that's the future there. Uh, I'd like to thank you again, Tammy, for all the work you do with your, with uh, your podcast and every in for our industry. We sure appreciate it. And, uh, Shout out to you know all the guys in my industry, my business partners, uh, Tim and Jerry, and everybody, and Paul. And you know, I'm blessed to be able to work in this industry. It's, it's been a, a great career for me. I I, I love it. I, I've made great friends over the years, and uh, and you know, and that's that's as important as anything else. Is how, you know we got great guys working for us, and uh, they do you know they're not they're not they're not workers. They're a family, you know, and that's the yeah. uh, it's one of the key things about, I think, any business, but the energy industry seems to lend itself well to this. Is your, your, your staff become your family, and we we like to treat them as such. They're a great bunch of guys. So uh, shout out to all of them too for doing a great job. Yes, thank you, thank you to everyone. Thank you so much.